Well, hello there, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. It is Tuesday, 17th of August, 2021, and I think we're up to episode 308. Not quite sure. 309, but, uh, I just checked. It is 309. Thank you, Joe, the tech guy. So anyway, episode 309, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, where we talk about news and politics and sex and religion. I, of course, am Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist, uh, with me, with a new microphone that she gathered today, and the sound's great, the video's great. Shay, welcome back again. Good evening. Hi, everybody. And Joe, the tech guy, is there as well. Evening all. So, if you're joining us in the chat room, say hello so that we know you're there, and we'll try and get to your comments. We don't have a whole heap of topics that I normally have, so we'll probably be looking for some comments from the chat room. So, by all means, make a comment, say hello, it'd be great. And, well, what are we going to be talking about tonight? I think we have to talk about New South Wales and lockdowns and Gladys Berejiklian and probably a bit about Afghanistan. And, Shay, you found something interesting about legalisation of prostitution and thoughts about that and a whole bunch of different topics. So we'll kick them off and see what rabbit holes we end up going down. Thanks to Dire Straits, who says hello in the chat room. And, well, Shay, got any friends in in New South Wales, in Sydney? Do you have any friends there bemoaning their situation? I have a bunch of cousins in Newcastle and I have a couple in Reevesby. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they're unhappy. My cousins in Newcastle were planning to get, this is the third time they've rescheduled their wedding. Mm. So that's been just canned as well Mm. because it was going to happen in Brisbane. And do, you th- do you think they're bitter about, I mean, uh, uh, anecdote isn't, you know, a number of anecdotes isn't, the plural of anecdote isn't data, but we'll do it anyway. Your friends, are they <laughs> like so pissed with Barry Jicklian that they can't wait to vote her out next time? Or is it, you think it's I don't think got it's personal? connected. No, right. No, I don't think it's connected. They seem to be just like pissed off at their circumstance, but like get that it's a pandemic and right. they just, they're pretty fair about it. They just say, you know, like. We're in new territory all the time and we don't know. Right. Like you can tell that, you know, the premiers are kind of fumbling their way through it. Yes. So, And that's what I find with, with you know, anecdotally with Australians. They are quite gracious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm not. <laughs> I was looking at the health report today. They said for every week you take to go into lockdown, you get five times as many cases. For every week you go into lockdown, oh, no, that no, you no. don't go into lockdown. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you get five. Okay, yep. That that wouldn't surprise and, me. And, and that was before Delta. Mm. Look, I, at one level I could be sympathetic for any political leader that some of this happens beyond your control and you can be just unlucky. But in the case of Berejiklian, she really annoyed me with her comments in relation to Dictator Dan and she was so cocky about how different they were in New South Wales So my son sent me a link to a YouTube video which goes for about seven minutes and I've condensed it down to about two minutes, which is sort of highlights the hypocrisy of Gladys. So I'm going to play that. It's going to go for two minutes and 11 seconds and have a listen to this. New South Wales is the gold standard 
New South Wales is the gold standard. I'm very proud every time the Prime Minister regards New South Wales as the gold standard. I fear for Victoria and I worry about what their government may do. And we made sure that uh, we had the systems in place to be able to weather whatever came our way so that we wouldn't ever go into lockdown again. From 6pm today, lockdown, 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 so that we wouldn't ever go into lockdown again. Greater Sydney will be in lockdown, in lockdown, in lockdown, in lockdown for a further four weeks till the 28th of August. So I talked about good management being critical during a, during a crisis, but so is trust. And we trusted our public. We trusted our community when we gave them advice to do the right thing. The crowd grew so fast with hardly a mask in sight. Onwards they marched from Broadway to Town Hall. Once at Town Hall, they took every vantage spot. From high above, the numbers were staggering. And in New South Wales, we didn't make up lists of who was an essential worker. Nobody can work outside of that local government area unless, unless they're a health or aged care worker or on the list of critical workers. Can I make it very clear that New South Wales, unlike other states, uh, has never determined what is essential and what is not essential. From midnight tonight, we will also make sure that only critical retail remains open. We have a list of what is critical retail. And in New South Wales, we didn't make up lists of who was an essential worker. On the list of critical workers, we didn't make up lists. We have a list. We didn't make up lists. We have a list. We didn't make up lists. We've considered carefully what is on that critical list. And I hope we've demonstrated in New South Wales there is an alternate way to heavy-handed lockdowns and heavy-handed approaches. Well, we have harsher restrictions in place than any other state has ever had. Even during the lockdown, our construction sites were still going. Until July 30, until midnight on July 30, there will be a pause on all construction, large or small. We know that when, when you're in a lockdown, it's easy to control the virus. It's much easier to lock down because you don't have to worry about anything. We're very courageous when it comes to the virus. A lot of those comments have not aged very well. <laughs> no. It, there's no admission, okay, we got it wrong. There's none of the Peter Beattie, whoops, made a mistake, just keeps charging on. And, boy, you know, she's really had to backtrack on so much of what she said. So if it had to happen to somebody, then happening to her was probably the best, I think. Might have taught her some humility next time something happens to another state and she just gets yeah. lucky. Mm. Mm -mm. Don't hold my breath on the humility, Joe. No. Mm. There, there was also the clip of her asked, being asked if she realised now she she felt how the other states felt when she asked when she refused earlier on to give them vaccines when mm. Victoria was in a similar state. Yep, and she, and she couldn't understand that her asking for vaccines now was a bit two faced. Yes, indeed. Hello in the chat room to Bronman, Don, James, Jack, whoever's making comments in there. Good on you. Keep making those comments. So obviously now New South Wales has really given in on ever getting back to zero, it seems, from the comments that she's making. And just as an outside observer looking at the state, it's hard to imagine them getting back to zero. So this is really... The next step in the whole process, Shay, where it's about at what level of vaccination do we just open up again and, and say, okay, that's enough and, and start getting back to normal trade, relying on a certain vaccination level. Got any thoughts that you're comfortable with as a number? Uh, yeah, I think the national strategy is 80%, so I'd be mm -hmm. satisfied with that. Eligible adults, is that right? Is that what it would be? Yeah. Right. So so really it's 60% of the population mm. or even 50% of the population. Mm. 
And given a lot of kids have got this Delta virus now, um, mm-hmm. you really probably need to be 80% of kids as well, like that sort of teenagers at least. Yeah. I would it's, say so. Yeah. It's going to be tricky to get to that level and there is going to be a point. There, you know, it has to come at some point where we say enough's enough and we just can't keep locking down and and there will be a day where we just open up and say you're going to have to rely on your vaccination and there will be a spike in cases and a spike in deaths on that day of people who either didn't want the vaccination or, as Joe points out, often people who couldn't get it because of different uh, reasons that they're unable to. It's just what's going to happen at some point. And um, it, it is possible to get back to zero, which would buy some more time. Victoria mm. did it from 700 cases a day. Yeah. But they, uh, was, but they, got, they were serious about it, weren't they, Joe? These guys that, exactly. That's the difference. Mm. You you have to go in seriously. You have to lock down, and there will be pain. And I don't think they have the political willpower to do that. Yeah. Yep. So Julia in the chat room says, "Yep, eighty percent doesn't include kids, and they need to be included in the figures now." Yes. So so just yeah. That's the next part of this whole discussion is is where we head to with vaccination rates, and and of course there will be pro-business people on the one hand wanting to make decisions that are less concerned with public health and there will be people who are concerned with public health and not so concerned with business and we will be bound to see the the fighting between the two forces and how it plays out. I I think the evidence is fairly good that it's not an either-or, that just concentrating on business and not worrying about health Mm. is actually detrimental to business because people, people get scared. Mm. Uh, and if the the virus is left on it to run its course, people still won't go out. You know, the, a minority will, but you you won't have the same level of business that you would that we were enjoying having got to zero cases. Mm. But the people like uh, Screw Turner in charge of Flight Centre and other groups, him, I think, have really they're just going to be pushing for it, and they don't see that argument they just want to be able to operate their businesses at full steam and local cafes and restaurant groups are going to say we want to be open and we just don't care we need we're going broke we need the money and that is one of the problems you have to have sympathy for these people they're not getting the same money that they got at the beginning of the pandemic with the money that was handed out i know in the art supply world that when the lockdowns first happened back last year there's a lot of money awash a lot of struggling artists actually had more money than they had previously and there was a lot of art supplies being bought. But that's not the case this time round. The sort of consumer sentiment is a lot slower. It's a lot weaker this time round. Well, because job seeker and job keeper are gone. Yes. Uh, and, and there are small handouts from the government, but nothing like we need. Yeah. Why aren't people complaining about this more? I don't get it. Yeah. Anyway, I've been listening to the Chaser podcast. Anybody else out there listening to that? It's fantastic. Those guys are in lockdown, so they've got nothing else to do but churn out really funny podcasts every week. It's very, very good. You should listen to it. And anyway, Charles Firth, he wrote an article. He's from the Chaser, and he talked about how Morrison gets things wrong all the time in in this. And he said, Scott Morrison unveiled an all-new four-stage plan out of COVID endorsed by the National Cabinet. This is not to be confused with the three-stage plan that Morrison announced in May or the COVID vaccination allocations horizon plan that he unveiled in June or the 
COVID-19 vaccine and treatment strategy plan revealed a year ago when he proudly announced he'd secured enough vaccine for everyone. With so many well-laid plans and so little achieved, we have now more than enough evidence to introduce a new iron law into the very scientific field of political science. Scott Morrison has been so wrong about every single aspect of the pandemic that his wrongness now has predictive powers. If Scott Morrison says something is going to happen, it is possible to say with absolute certainty, using the iron law, that whatever he said is definitely not going to happen. If Scott Morrison thinks something is a good idea, then it is definitely not a good idea. If Scott Morrison says we don't need purpose-built quarantine facilities, then even if you lack any other data point or expertise, you can be absolutely assured that we fucking need purpose-built quarantine facilities immediately. And Charles Firth says this is the Morrison certainty principle. (laughs) And I loved it. So, yeah, Mm. if he says it, it's probably wrong. The Morrison Mm. certainty principle. What a mess we're in having that guy in charge. So... Oh, dear. Okay. We're then just aiming for 80% as our target. Does that even seem likely then? I saw a poll, the essential poll came out talking about people's reluctance to get the vaccine. You know, are you likely to get soon or sometime or never? And the never figure dropped a lot. So that was good. It had been back to sort of, it went back to like single figures of people Mm. saying they would never get it. So... Mm. I think 80% is possible. Yeah, mm. I think so. Mm. Mm. Okay, let's move on from COVID for a little while. And the national sec well, we had the census. Um, Shay and Joe assumed you filled it in. It was, if you didn't, don't tell me because it's illegal not to. <laughs> Where are all the libertarians, by the way, complaining about being forced to fill in the census form? You know, forced to wear a mask, forced to stay at home. Didn't see any protests about having to divulge personal info, but anyway, but the census. So, of course, for us, the big question was the religious question. And the way it's been phrased is particularly annoying for pro-secular groups because it says, what is your religion? And that's kind of like a leading question where people will think, rather than stopping to think, do I have a religion, they'll sort of nominate one that they were brought up in. And secular groups have for years been saying that if the question was rephrased to say something like, what is your religion? Instead of what is your religion, to say something like a two-part question. Do you currently have a religion? Followed by what is your religion? And the thinking was that that would give a more accurate result. So I actually mentioned this to the National Secular Lobby a couple of months ago. I said, you guys should conduct a proper poll where you question people two different groups with this, with the, the way the census is currently structured and with a question in a two-part and see what difference you get. And then you'll have proof to say to the ABS that there is a real problem here because they've been making representations to the Australian Bureau of Statistics who are basically ignoring them and saying we don't see a problem with the question. So this is an exercise in trying to provide proof. So... So they went to essential poll. So where we often in this podcast talk about the essential poll in terms of people's opinions about lockdowns and who they're going to vote for and stuff. So essential are a really reputable organisation and they did it over two different polls. So uh, roughly 1,100 people were questioned in each uh, of the two days and 
on the first day, one group, or half of them were asked the census-type question and the other half were asked the two-part question. And then a week later or two weeks later, when they did the poll again, they did the same thing with another group where they asked them the census-type question and they asked them the two-part question. And so then they amalgamated it all together and they roughly had about 1,100 people answering the census-style question and about 1,100 people answering the two-part question, which is a good number of people to have. So let me just see if I can read this a bit better in terms of error. Effective samples, the the margin of error is 3.1%, so a 95% confidence level. So a good number to use, like... Proper, a proper sample was done. So the big question, and I'll put it on the screen for those watching in the live stream, is what was the result? And looking at the no religion response, so when people were asked the current census question, what is your religion, doing it with this poll, 41% said no religion. But when asked, do you currently have a religion, followed by what is your religion, then 52% said that they have no religion. So there's an 11% difference. Makes sense, Joe? Mm-hmm. Yep, I think it is. If, if you prime people, we know you get a difference between how they answer questions. Mm. Yep. So... It's interesting, I saw some of the correspondence between the National Secular Lobby and the Australian Bureau of Statistics and it's kind of funny where the Bureau was kind of saying we're not that interested in what people's religion is as to what they consider their religious heritage to be. They were, it's a very funny sort of response from the Australian Bureau of Statistics about what they thought they were looking for. So. Anyway, good job by the National Secular Lobby to get that done and that'll give them plenty of ammunition over the years to lobby and suggest to the statisticians that I should stop asking leading questions. What else was in there? Um, If you basically then look at a two-part question and look at the figures, the most popular religion would be uh, Catholic, which would be 16%, and then the next would be Anglicans, 8%. And then it really drops away. Uniting Church, 3%. Islam, Buddhism, Presbyterian, Hinduism, 2%. Greek Orthodox, 1%. Baptist, 1%. Other, 5%. So so, Christ, uh, so Catholics at 16%. Only 16% of our population. But when you think of all of the Catholic education facilities, hospitals, mm. it's amazing, amazing number of institutions that are Catholic given the representation in our community. An amazing amount of power, given their low representation. But that's how, it, that's how it's turned out for us, unfortunately. What else was in these statistics? And no, no, it's, it's critically important that we give them taxpayer money to fund all this infrastructure. Yes, indeed. How much housework do you do, Trevor? How much do, housework do I do? Yeah. Do, yeah oh, I'm from the census question. Yeah. <laughs> well, it asked me for last week... And I have to say my house, yeah, for the week that it asked, I have to say my household duties were quite low. (laughs) (laughs) I was busy with other things. Okay, not difficult. Yeah. So you're saying it's not not representative. It represented that week, but it wasn't a normal week, but I had to to say what it was for that week, yeah. Typically. 
what would I say typically? I often wash, yeah. I, I would regularly do the washing up, stack the dishwasher, for example, and unstack the dishwasher during the day. Like, And I make all the coffees in this house. Does that count? Does coffee making count? Sounds like you're reaching, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I used what about to. You, I used to. How's this? I used to have to mow the lawn. So I was in charge of the lawn and my wife was in charge of the gardening. And what I did yep. was I managed to convince her that we should rip up the lawn and replace it with a garden. <laughs> I haven't fired up That's the lawn. Move. It was. So now I am here. <laughs> you, you do realise she listens to the podcast though. <laughs> so, so, so now I only have to mow the footpath. I, I, yeah. I only have to mow the footpath. I don't really care about it. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Very. Other household duties. No. Well, actually, well, no. So I would usually put my mother's washing on and hang my mother's washing out. So there you go. That's something I would do. Um, do a lot Sounds of caring like for her. I, oh, do, okay. I, I put me down for carer activities as well. So with yep. her, taking her shopping, taking her to the doctors, other things yes. like that. So put me down for that. Look, fairly modern, I'd like to think. Yeah, yeah. Okay, look, I got enough of an inquisition from Justice Burns last week. I don't need one from you, Shay. <laughs> yeah. mm. Well, there, was, there wasn't, it didn't seem like there was outrage about religion, but there did seem to be some outrage around pronouns. And I was personally a bit mad because the way they framed the question about whether you're on JobKeeper or had found other work, like there wasn't an opportunity to really describe your situation in the past year. And I thought considering, you know, the level of insecure work and all of the, you know, things that have transpired in the past year, that that was, that was a shame, frankly. Right. Yep. Mm. The other odd one there was a question asking if you'd been a member of the Defence Force. Oh. And. That one. Yeah. And really, shouldn't they shouldn't they have that information? Shouldn't there be? I think so. Yes. Shouldn't there be a book somewhere with a name, rank, serial <laughs> number, date of birth? Couldn't they have possibly worked that out through other means? If they'd been asking for overseas service, as in people who'd served in other armies, I could understand that. Mm, I can't remember how it was phrased. I was just assuming. No, no, it said ADF. Oh, did it? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a strange question for. Mm. Yeah. And again, when I migrated, they asked me what military service I'd done mm. as part of my migration visa application. Okay. Yeah. Look, maybe the census people had sort of been looking at, Af at Afghanistan and thought these guys are responsible for a cock up there. They probably can't even keep track of their own members. We'd better do it for them. That could be, <laughs> that could be what's happening there. My I'm guess is that it's around veteran funding. Okay. Okay. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, but even then, that's going to be misleading because my mother was not, but she gets veteran funding because she's a widow of an ex-serviceman. So they won't get a really good picture from that. Hmm. Okay, Shay, you sent through something about the Victorian government has endorsed. Well, that's decriminalised prostitution law. Yeah. So I had a bit of a Gladys moment because in the last podcast I'd been I basically did a shout out to this campaign group called Collective Shout, 
whom I thought were quite good at campaigning for ending exploitation to women, but I have to disagree with them on their position. So they are really angry at the Victorian government for decriminalising sex work and have said that basically it's just opening the doors to more pimping and more problems and, of course, commodifying a woman's body is, you know, taking Mm. us back time. So you're actually actually disagreeing with them, are you? Yeah. Ah. So I did an assignment on this last semester around the subject was deviance and I had to determine how deviant sex work was. And while I appreciate that commodifying a woman's body is like uh, pretty backward and unpleasant, Mm -hmm. the way I see it is actually decriminalising sex work is the simplest way to actually get sex workers some rights and some agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just wanted to see mm. what you guys <laughs> thought of that. I was, I yeah, everything that I saw was that sex work is flourishing, it's moving online. I think if you took any other is- issue like voluntary assisted dying, that actually regulating it does provide us with yeah. like options options it's not the it's not the of ultimate solution it's it's not going to fix the problem but it gives sex workers the opportunity to go to the police now mm. and not have to be worried about being you know prosecuted themselves okay so let me just explain for the dear listener that i think it was decriminalized previously in relation to the women as participants in offering the service but mm. that it wasn't decriminalized in relation to the pimps, and which is a really the the term for the for the organisers, I guess, and so I think the argument was that they were agreeing that of course it should be decriminalised for women who are offering the service, but they didn't want it decriminalised for the pimps, and they were yeah. saying that, and they were referring to what had happened in New Zealand, I think, and and they were saying that. Women were getting treated worse once the laws changed. And so, so they support the Nordic model or the Swedish model, yes. which is where it's illegal to buy sex but not to sell sex. Yes. And this, the ACL also support this. It seems to be a very Christian shaming thing. And from the countries that have implemented, the sex workers say that as soon as you make it illegal, you... Yeah, it, it doesn't matter whether it's legal for the girls. It's still a seedy, shady activity. They get surveilled by the police to catch the the guys who are buying it, and it actually they get pushed to do riskier work because one of these women said, when the law changed and it decriminalised the the other participants, she said, "I'd never heard someone say I paid for your body and I can do what I want until decriminalisation," and she, one of the other, their submission to the review was, we amplified the voices of sex trade survivors who had worked both prior to and after decriminalisation was implemented in New Zealand. These women described worse conditions for prostituted women who had less power to negotiate but none of the rights of an employee. They said decriminalising the purchase of sex emboldened the misogynist men who paid to use them and that it increased their sense of entitlement and led to greater violence against them. Now, remember, the, what are the, what's their name again? 
Collective Shout. Collective yeah, Shout. Yes. Uh, it is run by some very committed Catholics. Uh, it seems to be a Catholic lobby group. And uh, we know how they misrepresent the data. Yes. Is that right? It's run by a bunch of Catholics. Look up oh, the right. our board. Oh, it says at the bottom that they're non-political of their website. They're non-political and non-religious. Well, the CEO is definitely a committed Catholic who is all mm. about, what was it, right to life or whatever they call themselves, forced right. birth, basically. Sneaky. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it seems to be a Catholic. The fact that the ACL support decriminalisation, sorry, yeah. uh, the, the Nordic model, the same as these guys do, Right. And the fact that they slate Fiona Patton yes. as as being a member of the porn lobby rather than as a former sex worker. Yes. So Fiona Patton, who actually introduced the bill, knows of and has many friends who still are what it's like yes. to to do yes. sex work. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting, yeah. isn't it? There you go. There we go. Collective shout, not to be trusted, it seems. <laughs> yeah, because I just thought, like, because even some of the comments on the thing was just like, go and go and see what's happening in Germany. And Germany's decriminalised sex work. Right. It seems fine. And I checked the legislation provided by the Victorian government and, it, yeah, it seems very sensible. I don't think okay. they're just letting um, him well, there you go. Your instincts were right, Shay. It seems. Yeah. Amnesty support decriminalisation, mm-hmm. uh, and a couple of other major NGOs also support it. Yeah, just goes to um, show when you when you hear of a lobby group, you need to know who's paying them. What's yeah. <laughs> what is the, the other, agenda? The the other problem with the anti pimp laws is people are saying you can't be in rented accommodation because your landlord might be charged as a pimp. For yes. living off the illegal proceeds, uh, and girls can't band together collectively. So I think in Queensland they can hire a receptionist, but that's it. Right. And I think there can be no more than two of them working together. Otherwise, they have to apply for a brothel license. So there's a whole load of restrictions that make it very difficult. So Shay, you've handed in this assignment and you've done that. Yeah. All right. Well, if you had your chance, you would have put a little footnote in about who this group is. But the, <laughs> that's right. The bonus marks. <laughs> uh, mentions, I, didn't I didn't have this at hand. Yeah, so. Mm. Mm. Bronwyn right. mentions trafficked people. And whilst it is, it definitely does happen, mm. Uh, mm. the vast majority of trafficked people are actually trafficked out to work on farms and in factories. Right. Because despite all the, oh, my God, we need to save the trafficked people, it tends to be a moralistic, religious argument because if you actually look at the people who deal with trafficked and enslaved people, the vast majority of it is domestic work, quite often families bringing people over from India. Right, yep. uh, Or China are the two big places. Factories and farms Mm. are the places where people are mistreated. Mm. And, and I think it's something like 90% of people are in that. Mm. Interesting. So there we go. That was a good one, Joe, to find the, the background of those guys. Let's have – we, we need to – we couldn't possibly pass by this week without referring to what's happened in Afghanistan and those scenes of the aeroplanes leaving the airport with people 
literally hanging on to the to the bits and whatever they could on the outside of the plane and then falling off, you know, midair and plummeting to um, the ground. People sharing the video and it's like, I don't need mm. to see the video, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. So amazing scenes. And, you know, the thing that strikes me with all of this is nobody's looked at any of the modern history as to why this country is in the mess it's in to start with and how it got to this situation. And, you know, why is America – well, well, it's – isn't it terrible well, America's leaving and the Taliban it, are going to come in? Sorry, Joe. It all went wrong at the Khyber Pass, I think. Right. Okay. <laughs> Want to elaborate or <laughs> – Oh, sorry. The Britain, when it owned India, was taking over neighbouring countries and came up and tried to invade Afghanistan. Yes. And got bogged down back then. Yes. A yeah. And – Western incursions into Afghanistan have been going on ever since then. Yeah. I mean, I mean, people look at these countries and go, they'll see the Taliban and, and they'll go, what is it with these countries? Bunch of savages? Why, why can't they just get their act together? Why are they, why are we bothering to waste our, you know, our military lives over there? We should just let these people get on with it. And, well, the answer is we should just let them get on with it. The problem, the reason why they're, Part of the reason these guys are in a mess is because of the interference that has gone on by the US 50, 60 years ago that is coming home to roost today, like the incessant interference stopping these countries from actually having the governments that they wanted to back then is leading to, you know, the cause of the problems now. So, so just a little recap on some Middle Eastern history and... So, and, and sort of Afghanistan is tied up with Iran in many ways. And to understand Afghanistan, a little bit of understanding of Iran is sort of required here. So back in 1953, Iran had duly elected Mossadegh. And by all accounts, he was a decent man who looked at the oil revenue that British Petroleum was taking out of the country and they were basically paying a peppercorn rent and taking all of the um, profits from oil and it was leaving Iran. And he said, you can't do that. We've got to renegotiate this contract. It's just simply not fair. And even America said to the British, hey, that's a, of course that's an unfair deal. You just can't let that continue. Anyway, the British of course, backed British Petroleum and eventually the Americans came around to their point of view. I can't remember the exact details why, but essentially they had a, a CIA operative called Kermit Roosevelt, like it's a great name, Kermit as in Kermit the Frog and Roosevelt as in the president, distant re related. And he single, almost single-handedly engineered the coup that overthrew Mossadegh and they... You know, he hired thugs to walk the streets and he hired people to do a propaganda campaign. And the duly elected leftish wing government of Mossadegh was overthrown and in its place was the Shah of Iran. And what happened with the Shah was that he at times tried to, to sort of modernise the country to some extent, but he came up with the problem where he was clashing with the, the Islamists. 
So the Ayatollah Khomeini was exiled by the Shah for 14 years. And the Ayatollah basically created this new force in politics, which was Islamic political activity. Up until then, America only had one enemy, and that was communism. But by interfering in Iran and refusing to help the left, they they enabled what became this Islamic political force. So that didn't exist without American interference in Iran in the first place. And, of course, there was a revolution and, and the Islamists won. And, and that was a watershed moment where political Islam became a force for the first time in the world. So, so that was back in 1979 that that, that overthrow happened by the Ayatollah. And in Afghanistan, it was kind of a similar character in the 1970s, a Muhammad Daoud, who was kind of a little bit like the Shah in that he was wanting to modernise. But whereas the Shah was a, a, um, in cahoots with the USA, this Muhammad Daoud was more or less in cahoots with the Soviet Union. And he was worried about urban communists and also this growing Islamist movement in his country. So he basically started killing people and, and, and routing through different elitist groups. And the Islamists fled and they went to Pakistan, where they were welcomed with open arms. And it ended up then there was some communists, a Taraki and Amin, who took over. And they had a thing called the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, which was a left, you know, communist, Soviet sympathising group who specifically were extremely secular, like they banned people attending mosques, they told men they had to shave their beards, they had, you know, policies about empowering women in education. You know, when people are looking at Afghanistan today and going, oh, it's terrible what's going to happen with this Islamist force, the Taliban now, and what's going to happen to women? Well, way back, you know, in the late 70s, there was a group who was trying to secularise the country, but because they were allied with the Soviets, the Americans wanted nothing to do with them. Anyway, what happened was that the Soviets became worried about the guy who was in charge. They thought he was starting to side up with the USA. The Soviets executed him. A different guy took over, and it was the Islamists who provided the opposition to that sort of Soviet power that had been put in place. And, of course, when the Soviets then entered the country to try and shore up their man, it was the Islamists in the form of the Mujahideen who provided the, the opposition to these Soviet forces. And, of course, the USA helped the Islamist Mujahideen and that Mujahideen kind of morphed into, not exactly, some of them went into the Taliban and the Taliban was created through other means but certainly had a Mujahideen element to it. So, you know, the USA is, is again, got a big finger in the pie in terms of, of the creation of the Taliban as a force in the area. So, you know, arguably if these countries had just been allowed to have their left-leaning governments and just left alone for a while, okay, they weren't the nicest of groups and they were killing elites and doing all sorts of things, but in the long-term scheme of things, you wouldn't have created this 
extra Islamic political force that's ended up being such a big problem for America. So, so when people look at the Taliban riding into town and saying, oh, well, the Americans did their best but they shouldn't be spending any more men in defending the place, you just have to remember it. It's all a consequence of what's happened over the last 40 or 50 years. So, Well, a lot of American mm. weapons were left over. Indeed. And I don't, do, you, do you remember the Living Daylights, James Bond? No. So he ended up in Afghanistan mm. helping the Mujahideen against the Soviets. And mm. Spies Like Us, I seem to remember, was also. Right. Which was yep. Chevy Chase. Right. <laughs> Well, Joel, uh, in the, Joel in the chat room says, in Rambo, don't forget Rambo. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I've only ever seen the first one, right. which, of course, was set on US soil. Yeah. Sorry, I've interrupted. Sorry, Joe. Oh, no, no, no. But, yeah, it was very much a, a anything against the filthy Soviets. Yes. So, so, anyway, a lot of the problems in these countries comes about because of the interference that meant they couldn't just go through the processes they wanted to when they thought about having a left-wing government. And if if the US had allowed or even helped, heaven, forgive, heaven forbid, at that point, then history could have been a lot different. But uh, Well, we I was just thinking, um, sadly insane. Saddam Hussein was also funded by the Americans. Mm. Noriega was funded by the Americans. Mm. Noriega was allegedly a CIA spy. Mm. Yep. Pinochet in Chile, funded by the yeah. Americans. Just They just allow these thugs. They'll allow anybody to come in who's just not slightly left. And and then because they don't allow the left to operate, then in the Middle East we've had this political Islamic group being the only group that can provide an opposition, and that's what people centre around. So, so they've only got themselves to blame is the short answer, yeah. Okay, so that was a bit about Afghanistan. We didn't mention previously, Shay, what did you think about the Labor Party capitulating on tax reform and whether the, the Liberals have passed all of these laws that provide tax relief for middle and upper income earners, people at 200000 a year, and Labor have said, well, we're not going to change it if we get in. Did you have any thoughts about that i yes i i guess a part of me was like oh <laughs> but i also think we don't have the the might to to sell an alternate view it's not an election losing slash winning type situation in fact kind of letting this one throw to what's the letting it through the keeper thank you i guess what i'm saying is it's two seats we have to we have to win two seats, maybe three, to get a majority in federal government. Yeah. So we balance, we have to balance our fights around that. Mm -hmm. I tolerate Albo, but I really hate these guys. Yeah. And that seems to be like the game playing. And I'm at a point now where I just kind of have to like trust the strategy and hope they know more about it than me. So right. need because that slogans. Hey? Yeah, you just yeah, jobs and growth. Yeah. So so Labor needs a, a three word slogan that they just keep repeating over and over, whether it makes sense or not. Mm. And um, eventually they'll get the votes. Yeah. So basically I think the messaging that they're gonna stay with is what Labor can be counted on, has a reputation for being counted on, is health and infrastructure. And that's what they're gonna look at and that's what they're gonna sell. And people will, you know, 
buy that because mm. they do have a they do have a reputation for that. They have the state labor premiers who've done done just this, uh, provided infrastructure, done health. So, so it's a vote loser to try and to to go into the election saying we're going to get rid of those concessions and we're going to put them back on the tax brackets they were on before. It would be a vote loser, and we can't afford to yep. risk and you know, let them have something. Don't give them any ammunition. Small target sort of strategy. Exactly. Yeah. Make, make sure you don't make core promises. Yes. Yep. Just non-core promises. Yeah. Be, be, because if you say we are incapable of selling anything, therefore we won't even try, is kind of <laughs> yeah. the admission, isn't it? But it is. <laughs> but I've got this article from Crikey which says that if you look at Labor's internal review of its loss at the last election, in short and lost, and the review was led by Craig Emerson and former South Australian Premier Jay Weatherall. And, for example, it didn't single out negative gearing alone for losing. It found they were, let me just see here, I'm wondering if this is to do with negative gearing and I might have got the wrong one here. Uh, well, here's the argument of what they found in this report was it wasn't the fact that Labor had proposed taxes on people that cost them votes. It was that Labor, using the money that it got from the tax cuts or, or from the, the introduction of these taxes, that that generated a revenue for Labor. And Labor said, we're going to use that money and spend it on A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K items. And people looked at the spending and said, you guys are just spending too much. You're not you're not fiscally responsible. Yes. So it wasn't so much that they were taking money away from people in terms of taxes or in terms of things like negative gearing, you know, if they were to remove negative gearing. It, it was that the money that they got from these proposed programs, the spending that they were going to do was what actually cost them votes, ironically according to this. So, so yeah, in the areas where people would be worse off because they would be slugged by the Labor taxes, their vote increased in those areas. So the people who were kind of subject to it knew it was a good idea. So anyway, I'm not 100% convinced that Labor shouldn't have given it a go and just tried to explain it. I, I think Labor is not seen as supporting the worker, mm. the average worker in the street. Mm. And that's the problem is the Liberals, you know, with all the bullshit about, oh, yeah, we're, we're supporting you know, the, the tradies, the, the hard workers, when in fact they screw them over every chance they can. And I think Labor has lost the chance, has lost the trust. Mm. Okay. So there's another article from Crikey, which this leads, uh, what you're saying leads on to this, Joe. So, like, who is a typical Labor constituent? So employees in the traditional blue-collar occupations, technicians and trade workers, labourers, machinery operators and drivers, that sort of people, that's your typical blue-collar occupation. So that worker now accounts for about 23% of all workers. That compares to 28% for service workers, 22% for professionals, 9% for managers, contractors and owner-operators, 16%. So... 
The call for a return to blue-collar base ignores the demographic realities. It focuses attention on a subset of blue-collar workers least likely to support progressive politics in Australia and elsewhere. Support for the left is stronger among women than men, among young people and among the old, among employees than among contractors and business owners, and among the urban rather than the rural voters. And this is all from the Australian election study. So here's an interesting relationship between education and income. Because education is correlated with income, it's tricky. So holding education constant, higher income voters are more likely to be conservative while income is constant. Let me just say that again. Higher income voters are more likely to be conservative while holding income constant, higher education is associated with stronger support for the left. Mostly these effects work in opposite directions, with income predominating. But where they work together, the effects are strong. Voters with low education and high income, thinking small business owners, for example, are strongly conservative. By contrast, workers in professional occupations with relatively low pay and status support the left. So what does this say about the aspirational blue-collar workers represented as the labour base? They're typically classed as male breadwinners, typically of middle age and older, in regional areas rather than the inner city. They're either self-employed or they work in the private sector. The word aspirational is code for high incomes and a focus on less progressive taxes. In every respect, these characteristics are those associated with the conservative parties. So what kind of worker would you represent, would represent the archetypal member of the labour base? The analysis above suggests a young woman in a stereotypically female public sector occupation requiring post-school education but with an income well below the average for full-time workers. So that typical voter would be a Gen Z enrolled nurse working in a major city hospital. That would be a typical labour. So... I thought that was interesting, this sort of the way that it plays between income and education. High income, low education, likely to be conservative. Mm. Lowish income, but high education, very likely to be labour. And What would you consider inherited wealth? Oh, as to the, I don't know, Joe, I have to think about it. But if, you, if, you'd, if you'd inherited a lot... And you had a low income, you could still be that conservative. I, oh, I'm, I'm thinking of certain millionaires, billionaires, whatever they are. Right. Son of the Turnbulls, for example, is that what you're thinking of? Like, well, I was thinking yeah. more in terms of mining wealth. Right. That, that you would consider well-educated but also very rich mm. and, and very, very right-leaning in terms of almost libertarian, talking about bringing in skilled workers, cheap labour, almost. Because it suits their business interests. Absolutely. Yes. So I'd say I I think the biggest left vote are the middle class. Uh, Yes, particularly according to this, it would be an educated middle class. Yes as opposed to the middle class of a tradie or a small business person. Small business, yeah. Would, would not be. tend to be more conservative. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I think that's, you know, I think that's a useful analogy, the way it's sort of 
saying that the well-educated professional people in the, say, the law, nursing, range of just, just teaching, you know, they're on an okayish wage, but they're not particularly wealthy by any means, but they're well-educated. That's your Labor voter there. And your blue-collar regional guy, maybe running a small business, less educated, might be on a same similar income level, but less likely to be conservative. So I think the Labor Party has real issues. There's, there's obviously this change has occurred in our politics from the 60s and 70s as to easily identifying who they're pitching at. And that was the genius of John Howard in that he managed to grab those tradies and convince them that that he was, that, you know, that they shouldn't be Labor, that they were small business people and that they would really be better off voting for the Liberals. That was the sort of the turning point and the genius of, of Howard. But to be fair, that sort of has happened around the world. That's not just in Australia. That's, that's a phenomenon around the world, you know, the US in particular. Well, union membership has definitely dropped off. Mm. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of clerical workers who could well be served by a union. Mm. And they, they just, I don't know, unions over here seem to have a very bad reputation. Yeah. Well, that leads on to the next article as well. Do you remember the air traffic control? Where were you when the air traffic control strikes were happening, Joe? Probably in the UK. Right. I won't ask you, Shay. You probably weren't in 1981. Well, what were you doing, Shay? 1981, yeah. I was still at primary school. Okay. There you go. So I can remember it. I was just sort of finishing university and I can actually remember I was an article clerk at law firm and one of the lawyers needed to go to Cairns and because of the strikes, she had to get in some RAAF troop carrier type airplane and be strapped on in a Hercules to get up to Cairns because they were running the flights because of the air traffic control strikes at the time. So so it used to be a thing, Shay, that around holiday times the air traffic controllers would go on strike <laughs> and demand pay increases and they would always do it around that time because it was when people really wanted to use them and go away on a holiday. And so they were particularly well known as a well-paid group the air traffic controllers. So I've got a link to an article here that the murder of the middle class in the US began 40 years ago this week, which was on the August the 5th, 1981, when President Ronald Reagan fired 11,345 air traffic controllers who were on strike at the time. Can you imagine it? 11,345 of them sacked. And they were, you know like the Australian version, very militant and strong. And uh, he barred them from ever working again. And by a few months later, the union in control of them had been, had been broken, decertified, laid in ruins. And while Bill Clinton lifted Reagan's ban on strikers, fewer than 10% were ever rehired by the Federal Aviation Administration. So I know in Australia, a very similar thing happened and really most of them ended up having to work overseas because the Australian government employed a bunch of overseas air traffic controllers and these guys had to end up going over to Dubai and places like that to, to get a job. So that was all 40 years ago. And this article was saying that was really a pivotal moment in labour relations around the world, that a really strong, powerful union just got crunched 
And so up until that time, the previous 30 years, productivity in America had grown by 100% and workers' pay during that time had grown by 100%. But after that time, productivity grew four times uh, faster than what the pay has grown. So the link between productivity and worker pay was broken. So in terms of strikes, generally in the 30 years prior to that event, there were between 200 and 400 large-scale strikes. And by the time you got to 2000, that's each year. And by the time we got to 2017, there were seven. So unions and people recognised that they that the government, if, if a union like the air traffic controllers could be crunched like that, then what hope did anybody else have? Because they really had a, an advantage there. So, 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 yeah, a pivotal moment in labour relations. And I guess if you can't strike and you can't enforce things, then why be a member of the union then, Joe? Like you said, union membership has dropped off. The Game of Mates book talks about the neutering of the unions mm. and argues that giving them super, what's the membership super? Compulsory. By, no, no, not compulsory. Oh, industry super. Industry super. Giving them control of the industry super has made them part of the establishment now. Right. And they're less willing to upset the apple cart. Right. Because it affects their bottom line. Uh, okay. Haven't they certainly had their powers whittled away, though? Like, um, I don't think you can actually strike in Australia, can you? And your protected action is somewhat limited. I don't know the exact details on striking, but I think you're right that it's not as nearly as easy as it used to be. Mm. Mm. And, of course, there used to be, like, one strike by one group and then there would be these sympathy strikes by other groups mm -hmm. in support, and that sort of was banned to a large extent where you couldn't have a sort of a sympathy strike that... You know, it's sort of, it was a real strike mentality at different times. Like, you ever heard of a singer called Frank Sinatra, Shay? Yeah. <laughs> like, he came to Australia and he was just in a bad mood and in some, in some press conference he referred to Australian female journalists as like hookers and broads or something like that. And, and basically the union movement said, well, until you apologise, you're not getting on a plane to go to any of your concerts. And they... And the whole union movement basically forced him into a situation where he had to negotiate with Bob Hawke and do some sort of apology. But, yeah, mm. they basically, the transport workers supported the journalist union and, and that sort of thing was quite common in those days. So the power's gone out of the system for the worker, that's for sure. Well, I, I remember Maggie and Kinnock mm. um, in Parliament trading blows, especially about the miners, mm -hmm. verbal blows. But, yeah, Maggie basically killed the mining industry in yes. the UK. Some would say that it was actually a good thing, moving moving away from coal. She was actually a scientist and she believed in the science of global warming. Was that her reason uh, for cracking down on them, though? I don't know that that was the reason why, but I think it didn't help. Mm. Or was was another blow against them. Mm. So I certainly remember the the end of the seventies, the early eighties, very much being the conservatives cracking down on the power of the unions. Mm. 
So anyway, this article makes a good case that it was the uh, the firing of the air traffic controllers, 5th of August 1981, nearly 40 years ago, that basically was an arm in the coffin for the union movement as a powerful force. And I think there's solid argument for that. But even in the, you know, in the industry of aviation, there is a history of that. Alan Joyce grounded the fleet as well. Right now, the only people that are holding holding the fort for Qantas workers are unions. Mm-hmm. There's still a fight to be had, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. They are still serving a purpose. Yeah. So, so yeah, so that's that. Do you watch much of the Olympics? Oh, Shay's disappeared. She's, I don't know. Oh, she's, yeah, her internet must have dropped out. Must have dropped out. So, Joe, did you watch much of the Olympics? Not a sports fan. Right, fair enough. There were some interesting moments. Because I subscribed to the New York Times, The there were some strange things going on in the New York Times in terms of coverage of the Olympics and... One of the really strange things was the way they were obsessed with China and the US in terms of the medal race. And uh, You might need to zoom that in a bit. Yeah. No, hang on. don't know if I can. Es- essentially, in every medal count I've ever seen for Olympic Games, you would always count countries by, rank them by the number of gold medals that they had. But the New York Times insisted on doing an overall medal count as what would count put you in the top number one position. So they were putting the US as as on top of the medal count with 73 medals as opposed to China on 69. But at that stage, China had 32 gold medals and the USA only 24. Like it was just a ridiculous way of, of, of showing the medal count. And, and the other thing that they were doing over there was even when they were doing a little graph showing the medals as circles and they would actually make the Chinese circles smaller so that it didn't look like their lead was as big as as it was. All sorts of strange anti, like just something as simple as the Olympics, anti-China stuff that they were doing. There was a young gymnast and, you know, say with News Corp it would say, China's Hong Chan Quan, who at 14 years old was top of the competition on Thursday, has not cracked a smile despite her impeccable performance so this was sort of referring to the sort of the chinese as just uh, almost robots without emotion and but meanwhile you didn't have to look too far and you could find a lovely photo of her smiling beautifully like it was just the way they wanted to portray the chinese as as unemotional robots and then also they would say you know the same magazine the new york times would say the chinese sports machine single goal the most golds at any cost basically criticising the Chinese for just being a, a sports machine, just trying to accumulate gold medals. Then, But at the same time, they would run an article on Britain. Britain's huge investment in summer Olympic sports pays off, and that was a positive one because they liked the Brits. So just shameless sort of misrepresentation of China. Do you not remember whichever one of the 70s, 80s Olympics where the whole Russian team basically were caught doping. Mm. Yes. Uh, and, and, yeah, if you remember the Soviets, they had a huge machine to get their team to the Olympics and win. Yes. yes. At all costs. Yes. Because, yeah, they were all in the army. Yes, indeed. Yep. So, and, and you know, they're obviously cheating, but it's just, uh, they just can't help themselves, the American press, in bagging China, even when it came to the Olympics. So, so that was that article here where 
gold giant Newmount Corporation, so a big gold miner, axed one of its most senior executives for refusing to abide by the company's COVID-19 vaccination policy. So he was an American guy and an anti-vaxxer and he was a very senior executive and they said, well, if you're not going to get the vaccination, then you're sacked. Anybody disagree with that as a policy? Well, SPC did that as well. Who's SPC? The fruit cannery. Oh, okay. Yes, for well, for all of their uh, yeah, they production said line if workers, you, yeah. yeah, yeah, if you come into the factory, you, I think it's not only production line workers. I think it was even visitors, contractors. So you need to be vaccinated to come on site. Mm. Yep. So um, that'll be interesting. Telstra have said they're giving two hundred dollars to every employee who gets vaccinated. Right. So they've said we're not going to mandate it, but here's some strong encouragement. Okay. And what if you've already been vaccinated? Do you still get um, two hundred? Yeah, as long as you've got a vaccination certificate, they'll give okay. that. Yep. And they're keeping it open till the end of December yep. because they said they recognise that there is a shortage of vaccines at the moment. Right, okay. And obviously this is what's happening in Europe with people wanting to get into clubs and mm-hmm. festivals and things, having some proof. I wonder what they can create that's actually sort of fraud. Forge proof? Yes. Short of a, a government website where you could look somebody up, see a photograph of them. The second you have a document on the person's phone, it's forgeable. Yes. Have you heard about the forged COVID check-in app, Shay? Yes. Shay? No. Okay. So for people who don't like the idea of letting the government know where they've been, they're actually able to get this app that looks like the COVID check-in app and they will use it as they enter a premise and scan the QR code. And on the screen, it will come up with the normal, congratulations, Shay, you've checked in at XYZ bakery or supermarket or wherever you happen to be. Looks exactly like the real thing, but it's a fake app. So you could flash it to anybody there who wanted to check that you had been doing the right thing. But in fact, none of the data is going to the government. So that's what's going on out there in terms of fake check-in apps. Because they already, like some of the QAnon stuff I've been looking at, they've already had a look at how they're going to get around the vaccination thing as well. Mm-hmm. And it seems pretty amateur to me, but obviously they've <laughs> developed their skills since then, so that's a worry. Yeah, so be interesting to see how it happens. Like in Queensland, we can't even get our driver's licence electronically. I've got to still carry yeah. a physical card. I know in New South Wales they can do it electronically. The, the, the problem is the government hasn't made a law that says it's illegal to ask for the information. Yes. And I believe the police have actually asked for COVID tracking information. Yep. And, and, and this is the problem. If they wanted, if they were being serious about it, if they said this is purely for health reasons, there's no reason for them not to introduce a law that makes it illegal for those records to be used for mm. anything else. And I understand the police always want assistance and, yeah, lives are going to be saved, but we always draw a balance between the two. And I think this is one case where we have to say this database is not for mining. Yeah, uh, It's purely to be used for public health and nothing else. And that at least would restore some trust. Yes. I, I, Mark McGowan did it. Yeah. 
Yeah, he brought in because they leaked it to the press. The police used the data for catching a crook and it got leaked to the press. So Mike McGowan really swiftly just put in new laws to say only only for health reasons you can't. I think it's critically important that we do that. Mm. You know, you're not going to assuage everybody, but I think a lot of people, it's, it's, it sends a sign mm. that the government isn't willing to tolerate it. Mm. Mm. Hey, do you remember me talking about sort of uh, casual, well, part-time casual workers who are on regular shifts being treated as full-time workers and being entitled to... The sort the of menu um, log driver or Deliveroo was he? Yeah, there was the Dev- Deliveroo one, and there's also been s- some mining workers as well. Who right. so basically, if you had an employee who wasn't called a full time employee, but basically was given the sh- the same shift every week, quite often Monday to Friday, nine to five, and really treated otherwise like a full time employee. Then there was a decision by the full court, the federal court, that said, okay, that sort of employee needs to be treated as a full-time employee and is therefore entitled to the same sick pay, the same superannuation, mm. the same long service leave, etc. And And this is why I tell people, don't, you know, mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be lawyers because... A full court of the federal court says, treat them like a full-time worker. What, the guys that get into that position are not dummies. Like they've, and they've really thought really hard when they've made their decision. And then it goes to the high court and the high court overturns it and says, no, you got that wrong. You got the law wrong. Like, it is so tough as a lawyer to try and work out with any confidence whether you're going to win or not. And it's just tough. Don't do it. Don't, be, don't become a lawyer if you think about it. I think, you know, historically workers had no rights Mm. uh, and the rights were brought in to protect the workers Mm. and then suddenly we've gone, well, they're not really a worker, they're this special class of worker which gets no rights again. Yes. Uh, And so what's the point of having rights for any workers if now you have this class of workers who have no rights? Yes. If you can just if you can just get around it by saying, "Oh, you're an independent contractor" or something like that, so we don't have to abide by all these rules, um, it it just seems to be a loophole that needs yeah. to be closed. Yeah. So anyway, Labor Industrial Relations spokesman Tony Burke said the judgment's effect was limited as the government had teamed up with One Nation to pass changes that extinguished the rights of casual workers. Anyway, the good news, Shay, is that a Labor government will actually do something, it seems. It will overturn the government's scheme, ending the rorts and restoring rights to workers, according to Tony Burke. Yeah. There's something. They did, weren't scared uh, on that one. They were happy to go to an election with secure, that, not scared yeah. off. Secure work, secure work. Yeah. That's all they're about and good for them. Because mm. can I make a just completely baseless assertion? Mm. It does seem to be a pattern of winning these industrial relation court cases and then losing them on appeal. It happened to Qantas with the mismanagement of JobKeeper. Mm-hmm. I went looking for other examples but ran out of time. Yep. And I just don't think like between the Fair Work Commission and some of the court systems that they really have any teeth. Mm. 
Yep. We have made wage theft illegal here in Queensland and I, in my line of work I regularly get follow-up calls around young workers who are still waiting on orders for their employers to pay them back in excess of like 18 grand and yep. that's from two years ago. So we have a wage theft law, but we still haven't worked out how to enforce it. Mm. And Fair Work Commission in the meantime is just like, when 18 grand, if you're 21, 18 grand is a huge amount of money. Yeah, yeah. You can buy a lot of avocado on toast with that. (laughs) Yeah. So Mm. anyway, that's my little rant. This is one of my things I get most ragey about. Yep, good point. In the chat room. Um, is, is there anything stopping them standing outside with a sandwich board going, this person was found to have stolen 18000 in wages off me? Oh, well. A lot of these businesses ban them. So there's a few news reports of people who are seriously pissed off and didn't get a good outcome or consequently are still waiting try to try to shame them but when you're going in individually and not with your union there it's oh, easy to move away not not going into the shop just standing outside the shop yeah well i might suggest that next time but yeah i, I don't I, know i, I, I think you would get a lot of customers going oh oh I, I don't know that i want to support a business that does that to their workers yeah but if you've got it wrong then you're in you've got a problem I, I think if mm. yeah, I think if uh, a tribunal has found that they owe you the wages, yeah, and then a high court says actually they don't. And meanwhile, you've been out the shop, sort of defaming them. Then you've got a problem. So that's one of the problems. Hey, in the chat room, just scrolling back as we're getting towards the end, uh, Bronwyn said, "How about the waterfront dispute in the '90s? That was an example of business effectively attempting to replace its unionised workforce with a non-unionised one." That's true. Patrick Stevedoring back in the um, day. Mm. I'm just thinking Fleet Street and their move out to Wapping, was it? Correct. In London? Yes. Essentially um, built a factory in secret, which yes. was more or less almost fully automated. automated. Yes. Yeah. And the same with the Wharfies, really, it was about changing to a system which used those giant cranes and less, and even more automated cranes, I think. And a lot less people involved. So so that was an example as well of unions losing their power. What else have we got here? Can't get through all the, all the comments. But thank you for your comments in the chat room. Guys, I reckon that might sort of do us. Shay, you'll be in danger of the shark tank if Landon Hardbottom <laughs> finds out that we've finished nine minutes early. But I think it can be excused given my workload. Now, next week... COVID lockdowns permitting, I'm going to be in Cairns. And so if I've managed to pre-record something, I will upload it. If there's, but, there are, but there's a good chance there won't be anything. I don't know, dear listener. So I don't know if there'll be a show next week, but there'll definitely be something the week after. So, yeah, not sure. Uh, if you want us to talk about something, send through some suggestions. Actually, next week I'm supposed to be doing – it would be normally an interview or a book view type thing anyway. So you guys I'll see in two weeks' time, whatever happens next week. And dear listener, if if there's not a show next week, it's just because I'm relaxing on a beach somewhere off Cairns <laughs> and Mrs. Fist and I are enjoying ourselves. It's a hard life, isn't it? Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah, lockdown's permitting. All right, well, thank you in the chat room. Thank you for the people who sent support about our strange things that I've been up to lately. We won't know a result on that for a few weeks, most likely, on the whole satanic thing we'll see. 
How much notice do you get when he's ready to reveal the judgment? I have no idea. Like so many of these things about this whole thing, I have no idea. So I actually sent them an email today to the associate saying, I'm not going to be around during this period. If a decision comes out and you're expecting me there, I'm sorry, I won't be there. I'm apologising in advance. I don't know, Joe. It depends because if, for example, he decides in our favour on the declaration, then his judgment will be relatively short and easy. But if he decides against us, then he's got to deal with a whole bunch of judicial review questions, which will be quite complicated and lengthy. So, so yeah, it just, who knows? Who knows? I don't know. I've sort of... Okay. I, I, it was not how long mm, is it going to take him, but mm. just are they going to warn you two days in advance? Yeah, that I don't even know. Okay. Yeah, so I just, I'll let you know as soon as I know something. Mm. Okay, dear listener, we're out of here. Thanks in the chat room for watching and maybe next week, if not definitely two weeks' time, talk to you then. Bye for now. Bye. And it's a good night from him. <laughs>